Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. In the 1970s, uh, the former Beatle, John Lennon, was living pretty much as a recluse in New York City. A lot of people know about him. Uh, everybody knows about the Beatles. Maybe one of the most iconic songs ever written, he did afterwards, uh, Imagine, Imagine There's No Heaven. It's easy if you try, right? He's living as a recluse, and what's not known much is that there was a period, there was a short period, maybe it depends on who, which source you uh, believe, There's, there are a couple of books that have been written about this time in his life. There was a period for somewhere between two weeks and a few months where Lennon became very interested in Christianity. He started listening and reading from TV evangelists like Billy Graham and Pat Robertson. People would hear him say things like, praise the Lord and thank you, Jesus. He even took his, um, his son to a, a Christian uh, theater production one time. And some reports say that he started attending some, some church services. So he was being drawn, it seemed, to Christ. And in fact, there was this moment, uh, this book, Robert Rosen wrote a book called Nowhere Man, The Final Days of John Lennon. And he's, he claims that Lennon was touched by the love of Jesus Christ. And it drove him to tears of joy and ecstasy. And so he drew a crucifix and he showed it to his wife, Yoko Ono. She didn't want anything to do with it. And she didn't want him to have anything to do with it. And so this interest, this stirring in his heart didn't last. And in his final days, final years actually, he was influenced by astrologers, numerologists, clairvoyants, herbalists, tarot card readers. You know, people can have spiritual experiences and people can seemingly be drawn and get close to Christianity and then turn away from it. And that is an incredibly sad situation. It is a situation similar to what we're going to look at this morning in our text. And I want to invite your attention to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 12 today. Here at Harvest, we teach through the Bible, we preach through the Bible. And right now, for several months, we're in the New Testament letter, which is called Hebrews. It was written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, some of the very first followers of Jesus Christ were Jewish. And they were in this background where they had become followers of Christ, but they were being tempted to turn back away from Christ and 
go back to their former ways. That's what this book is all about. The context of this particular passage, if I can set that up, after encouraging the audience to press on to maturity at the beginning of chapter 6, the writer issues an incredibly serious and, I might add, difficult warning followed by some powerful assurance. So let's look at God's Word this morning together. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things, in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. This is the word of God. And what God's word is going to show us today is that it is incredibly dangerous to receive God's revelation, but fall short of regeneration. It is incredibly dangerous to receive God's revelation, but fall short of regeneration. And there are a couple R words there that need a little definition. Not kind of words we always use all the time. What is God's revelation? It's what God uses to tell us about himself, to show us about himself, to reveal himself to us. And he has given us the Bible. And in this Bible, this is what we call special revelation. And there's natural revelation like creation, God, the heavens declare the glory of God. Anybody and everybody can look out and see that someone made that and that points to God. But this really, this Bible really specifically points to God. And so the warning is people who receive that revelation, who hear God's word, but maybe they're not regenerated. Now, what is regeneration? Let me give you Wayne Grudem's definition. It's a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. It's 
sometimes called being born again. So it's, we use terms like someone is saved, someone is a believer, someone is a Christian. But part of that biblically is being regenerated where God imparts spiritual life into someone. So someone can join the church. Someone can look like a Christian. Someone can get close to being a Christian. Someone can do Christian things or think Christian thoughts and still not be regenerated. They still aren't truly, really saved. And that is God's word. This is incredibly dangerous to have God's revelation, but not to be regenerated. In Hebrews 6 consists of a warning against falling away. And we need to ask the question, falling away from what? And the answer, of course, the issue in all of Hebrews is another term, apostasy. It's, it's making a big definitive break from a position you once held. And that's what he's warning these people against. Don't make a decisive final break from Christianity. And there are really two major possibilities for this warning. These would be on your outline there. And the first warning is some people have looked at a passage like this and said genuine Christians can fall away from salvation. In fact, there some people say falling away as if it's, it's not always defined. What does a person have to do? Maybe they once loved the Lord and they decided to start sinning a bunch and they fall away from salvation or they lose interest. And some people believe that a genuine Christian can indeed fall away from salvation. And that's what the writer is talking about here. But there's a second position. And that is people close to Christianity but never really saved can fall away from it. On this second view, the writer's not talking about falling away from salvation. He's talking about falling away or retreating from an exposure to, a level of commitment to, a taste of participation in Christianity. It's people who have experienced a lot of close things. Maybe some of the things that true Christians have experienced But they've experienced some of those same things, but they still haven't been regenerated, and so they fall away. This is a very challenging passage. Some of the reason why is because it uses some ambiguous language. But after studying it in detail, really for years, I believe the second option is to be preferred. I think the plain meaning of the text, what the text actually says and does not say supports that. And we're going to see many of those reasons as we walk through this text. But right at the beginning, there's a hint. And last week, we covered from 5.11 to 6.3, and the writer there was looking at or addressing the readers and saying, you, you, and I want you to mature. But now, beginning in verse 4... The language he uses changes a little bit, and he speaks about those people, right? It's impossible for those. He doesn't say, you're doing this. He's saying, I want you to mature, and now let me set this warning up for you, and let me create a scenario for you. So notice how the passage developed. The, the passage flows 
there's a warning um, first, and that is don't fall away from Revelation. Let's look again at verses 4 to 6. This is really the heart of the passage. This is the heart of the warning right here. Now, none of us live when they lived. We don't come out of a Jewish background and have are, are tempted to turn away from Christ. But this is very relevant for all of us. And hopefully if you'll hang in there for a few minutes, we'll see why and how it applies to people today who might do the same type of thing that these people were being warned against. We definitely don't want that to happen. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming of age, coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to, to repentance. Now, verses four to six is one long sentence. It's one long sentence. And you see how I've arranged it on the screen. It's like, To renew again to repentance those who have once, and then it's like, boom, 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 boom. Five things, enlightened, tasted the gift, partakers, tasted the word, miracles, and fallen away from that. Go to the bottom line. It's, It's impossible to renew them to repentance because they keep on crucifying the Son of God and putting him to public shame. Notice what is not said of these apostates. So let's call these people the apostate. These are the potential apostates, the ones who would commit apostasy, who would fall away from this profession of faith in Jesus. Notice what is not said of them. That's said of Christians in many other places in the Bible. Doesn't, doesn't call them chosen or predestined, born again, saved, justified, redeemed, made alive, baptized with the Holy Spirit, forgiven, delivered from darkness, converted, reconciled, washed, or he never says they believed. They experienced a lot of things, but he never says they believed. What is said is several things, and we're going to walk through those things about a description of them. And as we do that, notice, can these things be true of Christians? But can they also be true of people that experience many of the same things that Christians do, but never are saved? First of all, they are enlightened. And the word enlightened The concept of enlightened means that they were given spiritual understanding. In the Old Testament, this word is used for spiritually enlightening someone or informing someone by religious instructions. When you come to the New Testament, the word is used 11 times, 7 times of literal light, 4 times figuratively, but there's no reference to conversion in it. So, for instance, John chapter 1, verse 9, talking about Jesus, says, The true light that gives light, there's the word, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Everyone was enlightened, but not everyone was saved. So enlightened doesn't mean salvation. 
It's being freed from religious ignorance and being given adequate spiritual comprehension so that they can come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel. The next thing that's said of them is that they have tasted the heavenly gift. This means that they have learned divine truth. They do have a knowledge of the gospel. The word gift is used ten times in the New Testament. It always refers to some kind of gift that God gives people like salvation or the Holy Spirit or grace. But what is this gift in Hebrews? In Hebrews, it's best taken as intimately related to the knowledge of the truth, which is a result of enlightenment for several reasons. First of all, it fits the context. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, the topic here is Bible knowledge and a spiritual understanding of it. Secondly, the way the grammar reads in the original language, you've got that first expression that they were enlightened, but there's a little, there's a little small particle that makes it very, very likely that all these other phrases are just further describing what it means to be spiritual, spiritually enlightened. Third, the Greek word that's used for gift here was used early in extra extra-Christian literature of knowledge of the truth. And then fourth, the verb to taste in secular Greek outside the New Testament refers to consciously learning something or coming to know something by studying it and experiencing it. So, for example, in speaking of this group called the Essenes, Josephus tasted their philosophy. So they were enlightened, they, they received spiritual illumination, they tasted the heavenly gifts, in other words, they learned divine truth. The next thing is they have shared in the Holy Spirit. This means to receive the ministry of the Spirit of revealing the gospel. That is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit does many things in his ministry. One of the things he does is to reveal the gospel. If you're a Christian today, it's not just because you decided one day I want to become a Christian. It's not just because even someone told you how to become a Christian. It's that the Holy Spirit took those words, those thoughts, whatever experiences, and he revealed it to you. He opened your heart up. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, especially in Hebrews. Now, this expression right here, tasted or who have shared in the Holy Spirit, is seized on a lot uh, by people who believe that these apostates were saved. See, oh, how could, how could he say they have shared in the Holy Spirit? Doesn't that mean they were saved? But it's interesting. This, this expression, shared in the Holy Spirit, is never in the Bible used of giving or receiving the Holy Spirit unless this is the only exception. All the other places, uh, it's never used of that. Notice that some other things the author doesn't say here. 
The author doesn't say they're born of the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, given the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit, or having received or full of or possessed or walking with the Holy Spirit. Those are expressions that the New Testament clearly uses of believers in other places. None of those things are said of these people. It's important when we're studying the Bible not to, it's important to compare scripture with scripture, but it's also important to ask what does this writer contribute to a solid belief system. So for instance, what, what does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? We don't want to only ask what Peter teaches about it or what Paul teaches about it, but what happens? What do we see all through the book of Hebrews? What do we see the Holy Spirit doing? How does Hebrews present it? Well, here's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in Hebrews. I've given just a few references. We won't take time now to actually read those. But in chapter 2, verse 4, the Holy Spirit confirms the authenticity of the gospel with miracles. In chapter 3, verse 7, the Holy Spirit warns of rejecting salvation in Christ. In Hebrews 9, 8, I don't think that's on your screen, it's on mine. He reveals the truth of humans' limited access to God. In Hebrews 10, 15, and 17, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the eternal effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. And in Hebrews 10, 29... Insult is made to the Holy Spirit when his testimony of Christ's sacrifice is rejected. So in other words, this passage that we're looking at right here would fit well with the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right, I know we're covering a lot of ground here, but just if you're still awake and breathing, would you shake your head up and down so I can know? And do you understand what we're talking about, the Spirit illuminating, right? This isn't about the spirit indwelling, this, which is wonderful, and all these other things the Holy Spirit does are wonderful. But in Hebrews, the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to illumine truth. And so these people were that could never repent are people who received that much, certainly. Verse 5, they have tasted of the goodness of the word of God. Basically, they recognized that God's word was good. In the Old Testament, this refers to God's encouraging, consoling promises regarding the conquest of Canaan and the restoration of Jerusalem's lost portions to the exile. Here, it refers to God's consoling, encouraging promises of salvation. These apostates knew or recognized that God's word was good. They had also tasted of the powers of the coming age. They had firsthand knowledge of miracles that attested the gospel. We know that happened a lot in the first century. Miracles happened, and these were things that pointed to the gospel, and these people had seen some of them. Now, these five descriptions indicate positive ex- uh, events that are typically experienced by people who become genuine Christians. But they also could be experienced by people who get close and who are drawn to Christian community 
and maybe even start being a part of Christian community, but they're not conclusive enough on their own to say, oh yeah, these had to be Christians. Because apart from very important things in Hebrews like faith and perseverance, they don't match up with what a Christian is. They're what Wayne Grudem calls preliminary to the decisive beginning stages of conversion. So they have all of these things. They've come so close. And look what happens in verse 6. And yet they have fallen away. It's impossible. Remember, we're taking that from earlier. It's impossible that if they have all that and they fall away from that, to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, what what does that mean? What does falling away mean? Well, in context, and, and meaning is determined by context. In context, it means falling away from all of this overwhelming revelation that has been given them. They have deliberately rejected God's truth, even though they had all of the revelation. If they fall away, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance. In the Bible, repentance is not normally, there's sometimes in Acts, because Acts is a unique situation, but Normally, repentance is not equivalent to salvation. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, later, we're going to see that a man named Esau had repentance. He had a change of mind, but he wasn't saved. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that repentance leads to salvation. Just a few verses earlier in the passage we covered last week in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, repentance is a component in salvation, but it's not The only component, there's repentance and faith. So how had they experienced repentance? Well, they had changed their mind probably about their sinful life, about the validity of Christianity. uh, And it seemed like they had some genuine repentance. But nowhere does the writer of Hebrews attribute belief to them. Nowhere does he say they believed. They repented and they believed. If they had been saved, and this passage was about their inability having been truly saved and then falling away to to be restored, it should read, it's impossible to renew them to repentance and faith. But evidently, they only went part way. And to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. This is like a A causal sense. The original reads a causal sense. Because they keep on crucifying the Son of God and are constantly putting Him to shame. You put those two things together. Crucifying and putting to shame. You put them together and it's, it's, it's a figure of speech for just rejecting Him. They are and were rejecting Jesus. And it's in the present tense. Apostasy is a way of life. It's habitual. We have said from day one of this series that the entire epistle is a warning against turning away. Rejecting Christ and going back to Judaism for them. 
This, danger, this group is in danger of doing that. All right, let me put a picture up and tell you how many are like this when it happens to you. Not me. When you get a vaccine, it's like getting just a little bit of the disease injected in you so you won't catch it, right? We might say that these apostates had been inoculated against Christianity. Now, at this point in the passage, all right, so the writers laid this big warning out. If people have had done this, bang, 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 but fall away from all of that revelation. You you can't restore them to repentance. And now he's going to turn to give us a metaphor. He's going to show us a picture. He's given us a lot of words. Now he's just going to give us a picture in verses 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives a blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So the metaphor is that there's only two possible outcomes. You've got two kinds of land, right? And the land here, the, the land is the soil of the human heart. And the rain is the illumination of the gospel that the writer's already been talking about. And so when the gospel comes, when the illumination comes and it's going to rain on that land, there's only one of two things that happen. Either habitually, again, present tenses, habitually one type of land is just going to, it's going to bear fruit. It's going to have, it's going to have a crop. And the other type, it's, it's just going to, Thorns and thistles. You got one plot of land and two possible situations. See it on the screen? Some of it's going to look like that side and some of it's going to look like that side. And the question is, which side is your heart? Which side is your life? Only two outcomes. The saved person will receive God's blessings. The lost person will receive God's judgment. Here's, here's the metaphor, uh, of the field. Bad fruit basically is just going to reveal what the status was all along. Was it good soil? Was it bad soil? Were they saved? Were they not? Hebrews chapter three, we covered a passage a few weeks ago, said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Not they once had believing hearts and then went astray. There are only two kind of people in mind in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 6. Those who do not believe and fall away or those who believe and persevere. That's the way the writer of Hebrews presents it. Those that don't truly believe can fall away. Those that do believe will persevere. Now, up to this point... The writer's been talking about those people, right? (laughs) This is the warning. People who've experienced this, da-da-da, but fall away. You can't, they can't be restored to repentance. And here's a picture of it. Look at these two kinds of soil. But as he concludes the paragraph, now he changes his language again. 
And he addresses the Hebrew believers directly. And it gives us and them a great assurance. And here's the assurance. God is just and there is hope for true believers. God is just and there is hope for true believers. Verse 9. Notice what he said after saying all of that. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. Better things than the thorns and the thistles of verse 8. To me, this verse is one of the most convincing for the position that it's not true Christians who can commit apostasy, but it's those who can get really close maybe and indeed turn it away. The writer does not believe that they will be cursed or burned, but I believe better things about you. And he qualifies it, things that accompany salvation or things that have to do with salvation. And what would that be? That would be spiritual fruit. That would be perseverance. It, the Bible is so clear that when a person truly believes in Christ, it's going to change their life. We're not going to be perfect, but your life is going to be changed. And you are going to bear fruit, and you are going to persevere in that faith. That's the evidence that you are a true believer. And that's why he's writing to these ones who are being tempted to pull away. Hey, it is possible to be really, really close and then to fall away from that. But I'm convinced of better things of you, he says. Verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Now, why is he convinced of this about them? Verse 10, we don't see it in this English translation, but it starts with the word for. Verse 10 has given us the reason why he's convinced in verse 9. It's because he can see the evidence of salvation in their life, past and present. He's seen how they've loved God by ministering to people. That is really interesting. We show love to God by ministering to people. (laughs) We're showing love to people. But we're also, we're fundamentally showing love to God when we minister to people. Verse 11, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. The author wants them to show the same diligence to persevere as they have been showing in ministering to God's people. Verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherits what has been promised. What is required to inherit what God has promised? Faith and patience, or if you put that together, it's persevering faith. That's the best way to translate that phrase, persevering faith. Someone has rightly said, the faith that saves is a faith that stays. So if you if you put all of this together and you say, well, how do I know if I have saving faith? How do I know that I haven't only just gone part way? You know, the, the Bible calls us to believe, but you can go up and down the streets and ask people, do you believe in Jesus? And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. There's this very, very mild level of faith. Is it saving faith? Well, true saving faith has four elements to it. The first one is knowledge of the facts of the gospel. The facts of the gospel are this. 
Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is equal with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He came to live as a man. He was fully God and fully man, and he wanted to pay for our sin because our sin, our wrong, had separated us from God. And so he decided to come live as a human, to die on a cross, to pay for our sin. He was buried. He rose again three days later. And now he says, if you believe in me, if you trust in me completely for your salvation, you can be saved. That's the facts of the gospel. And the first aspect of saving faith is knowing those facts. The second aspect is a mental assent that these facts are True. Romans, I know this verse, but for some reason I want to actually read it. Romans chapter 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a knowledge of the facts. There's the mental assent they're true. Then you trust the Christ behind the facts. Some people get stuck at number two. They just kind of assent to them. But there's not a personal trust in the Christ who is behind the facts. And then number four is you persevere. You continue. You keep on in this faith. So let's, let's remind ourselves of God's word. And, and let's, let's just tweak it just a little bit as well. It's incredibly dangerous. To receive God's revelation, but to fall short of regeneration. Let's add true believers, persevere in faith. True believers, persevere in faith. You know, there's a, there's a colon there, and it's legitimate, but we also could remove it, and the sentence would be just as true. <laughs> true believers, persevere in faith. Let me just give a few final notes, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I think these are just, again, with such a difficult passage, it's important to to think these things through. First of all, there's a possibility of a mixed assembly. Remember, when we read tough passages like this, and it's like, boy, all the evidence seems to lean this way, but it's really hard. Let's remember that he's writing to people that he believes are true believers and are going to persevere. But it's certainly possible that there were some in that group that were close and maybe hanging out with them. And hadn't experienced that. It was definitely a possibility of a mixed assembly. There also are examples of falling short of saving faith in the Bible. How about Judas? Walked with Jesus, right? And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Have not I chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? How about Simon in Acts chapter 8? Verse 13 says he was, he believed and was baptized because he was astonished by the miracles that Philip was doing. He was a magician. He wanted, he wanted this power himself. And so he, he's like, when he saw some of these miracles, he's like, Hey, I'll give, I'll give you this money because I want this too. (laughs) Peter looked at him and said, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I can see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So we do have examples of people that fell just short. And then 
there's a lot of other New Testament teaching. I'm going to read you three or four verses. We could read a whole lot more, but there are a lot, there's a lot of teaching on the perseverance of the believer. Like John 6, 37, Jesus said, all the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Uh, John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it or carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So close and yet so far is the title of this sermon. Make sure that you're not close to Christianity, but not truly born again. That's the word for all of us today. You may not be tempted to turn back to Judaism, but you can live in America and you can attend a church like Harvest or watch online or other good churches that preach the gospel and you can be drawn and you can be illuminated in your minds and yet you haven't totally repented, meaning I see my sin and turned in saving faith. Don't let that happen. I'm going to close with the parable of the plant. A lady named Celia Wilkes was proud of her little succulent plant. But just when she was about to take the next step in caring for it, she realized that her efforts had been futile. She said, I was so proud of this plant. It was full, beautiful coloring, just, just an overall perfect plant. I had a watering plan for it. If someone else tried to water my succulent, I would get so defensive because I just wanted to keep good care of it. I absolutely loved my succulent. So she decided that it was time to take it out of its current container and put it in a larger vase. And when she did that, she realized that the plant was plastic. (laughs) The plant was plastic. She said, I put so much love into this plant. I washed its leaves. I tried my hardest to keep it looking its best, and it's completely plastic. How did I not know this? I pull it from the container it's sitting on, styrofoam with sand glued to the top. (laughs) Apparently, the plant's inability to soak up water never gave her a clue. In her defense, real succulents don't need a lot of water, right? Well, it might look like a real plant. It might be in a pot like a real plant. But if it doesn't have life pulsating in it, it's not real. It might go to church like a Christian. It might hang around with other Christians. 
It might use some of the same words that Christian uses. But if it doesn't have the life of God pulsating in it, it's not a Christian. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to you. What a tragedy it would be to be exposed to the word of God and the truth of the gospel without receiving Christ. It is incredibly dangerous to receive God's revelation but fall short of regeneration. True believers persevere in faith. Let's bow our heads, please. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.